As was mentioned previously, it is another blessed opportunity that has been given to each of us to assemble on this occasion, to do so in the tranquility, peacefulness of this hour, and to do so with the blessing and the fortitude of what God allows us to appreciate that comes our way from a service to Him that's done in spirit and in truth. As the Scriptures, in fact, often remind us, both Old and New Testament, the privilege and the honor that comes with Christianity is truly a remarkable thing. Peter, in fact, reminded us in 1 Peter 1, verses 9 through 13, that even the prophets and the ancient individuals of old longed to, in fact, appreciate what you and I now enjoy. That is truly something that should ever be on our mind as we think of how blessed we are to have Christ as our one and only sacrifice and all those things that He brought to us truly are blessed things in our lives day by day. As you can probably see, not only in what was on the wall just immediately preceding, but also as was mentioned in the bulletin, tonight we'll look at a lesson entitled, The Vow of a Nazarite. And as that was mentioned in the Old Testament, we will focus the attention upon it, but also seek to extract some matters from it that can be rather meaningful for you and me as we strive to live before God as He would have us to. Some questions, obviously, that come to mind. What was this Nazarite vow? To what did it refer? Who were the acceptable individuals to participate therein? What was required of them? All of those and then some will be the matters set before us tonight. And so with that in mind, here are some thoughts that perhaps would be useful as we proceed to think about the vow of a Nazarite. Isn't it amazing from time to time how often in the blessed scriptures we encounter a particular activity or phenomenon that may seem a bit unusual to us. It may in fact seem strange or odd, partly because of course the culture in the Middle East is very different than it is in the southeastern United States. Partly because these matters were written of individuals that lived 2,500 years ago now and then some. Perhaps it can be, in fact, that which relates to a particular activity beneath the old law that you and I are not expected to do any longer. All of that may, in fact, be a reason as to why something that you and I read may seem a bit strange to us. Perhaps that will be the case as it relates to this Nazarite vow this evening. But let it be noted that in every instance that you and I encounter, that which is presented is the truth. It is a true and factual description of what those individuals were doing, and quite often it is also a factual description of God's impression of it. And thus, there perhaps is something very meaningful in this Nazarite vow for you and for me to at least understand in principle today. There at the bottom of the slide, you'll notice that the word vow occurs rather often in the Scriptures, some 93 times in total in the English version, the King James translation. And you'll notice that some 23 times the actual Hebrew or Greek word is employed that literally means a vial. It'll be our challenge this evening to look at one vial in particular. But as we begin, I thought it wise to at least make mention of some general comments about biblical vials and then focus the rest of the lesson on this specific Nazarite vial. Some general statements about vows might include these. Again, as we give some thought to these general statements, I think we'll be impressed 
with the degree of responsibility and duty attached to these vows. And might we well begin in the following way. The first thing that might be interesting to note is that as the word vow is employed, likely you and I think of it as a verbal agreement, a verbal promise, if you please, between an individual and God. However, as the words employed in the Old Testament, it in fact can mean more than that. It can in fact mean this verbal promise or agreement between a person and God. But on many instances, you'll find that it actually refers to a literal sacrifice, animal sacrifice, that was made to fulfill that vial. That is to say, to fulfill that verbal promise or verbal oath that one may have made with respect to God. A number of verses, in fact, will directly make mention of the sacrifice that was offered as a part of that particular vial. It's interesting as you give thought to that. In Leviticus 7.16, that particular vow offering is mentioned. In addition to that, in Leviticus 22.18 and Deuteronomy 12, verses 6, 11, and 12, all make mention of these offerings that really are called votive offerings, V-O-T-I-V-E. Again, it was an offering that concluded or fulfilled the specific vow that one on that occasion had made. Interestingly, as we give some thought to that, here are some conclusions drawn from a few of those passages in the Old Testament. First of all, as the word vow is employed, it was always a particular matter, an oath, if you please, to God. We do not find any references of a vow that was made between a human being and another human being. It was directly between the person and God. In addition to that, you'll notice, action was involved in it, as if there was something required and demanded of the individual. We've already mentioned a particular sacrifice that perhaps had to be offered, but in other instances it involved some aspect of the person's life. Perhaps we're aware today there are still some religions on earth that do something like that abstaining for, from certain foods of certain varieties or kinds for a protracted period of time, this particular oath or vow involved a particular action. And God, in fact, as you'll notice, helps us appreciate that in Deuteronomy 23:22, this particular vow is mentioned as such that the demand was stated in the following way. I would ask that you notice the language that's presented on that occasion. It's exceedingly strong. Deuteronomy 23, we'll begin reading in verse 21. Verses 20, 21 through 23 of Deuteronomy 23. When thou shalt vow a vow unto the Lord thy God, thou shalt not slack to pay it. For the Lord thy God will surely require it of thee, and it would be sin in thee. But if thou shalt forbear to vow, it shall be no sin in thee. That which is gone out of thy lips thou shalt keep and perform, even a free will offering according as thou hast vowed unto the Lord thy God, which thou hast promised with thy mouth. Amazingly, we find here the remarkable set of statements. When an individual took upon himself or herself to in fact enter into this vow with God, we notice that God expected it to be kept. One was to do that which He promised or that which He vowed to do. 
And we also notice, though, if a person withheld vowing, it was no sin. But if one entered into the vow, God did expect and, in fact, demand that the vow be kept. As you can see from some of these verses that follow, that idea not only is found in this text in Deuteronomy 23, it is often found mentioned throughout the pages of the Old Testament. For example, in Numbers 30, verse 2, If thou makest a vow, or binds thy soul with a vow, forbear not to keep it. God expected it to be kept. As if that isn't enough, in Psalm 50, verse 14, Offer thy vow unto the Lord, and defer not to pay it. They were to inevitably keep that which they had vowed. In Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5, we furthermore see one final reminder from Solomon to that same end. They were always to keep those vows that in fact they themselves had made. We had just noted earlier that it wasn't required now for an individual to enter into a vow, but whether man or woman, if he or she entered into this vow, it was in fact to be always maintained and kept whatever it is that one had promised. We might now begin to ask, what would be some of the things a person might vow? Leviticus 27 does mention a few of these items. It could be anything from a particular article or item that a person may have owned or kept, all the way to the aspects of a person's service. In essence, vowing to become a slave or servant, if you please, for some particular amount or interval of time. All of that does remind us that God didn't specify what the object of this was in terms of the articles included, but it was always to involve a matter of holiness, always to involve a matter of seeking a higher degree of service and a higher degree of direction with respect to God's will. Some of the things about it do lead us to the very bottom statement on that slide. I stated it in this way. There was a high responsibility associated with the taking of and the keeping of a vow. In fact, it was so high that I thought we would not only look at one verse, but also look at an example of an Old Testament character who was a poor example in terms of his keeping vows or approaching them rightly. In Proverbs 20, verse 25, we remember and learn the high degree to which we are called, to which they were called, I should say, as evidence of a vow was made. But now to that example, Absalom. We might well recall there came a time when he chased his father David off the throne. David had become a fearful and afraid of him, thinking that Absalom would even take his own life. When that time arrived, that Absalom had basically usurped the jurisdiction and the power in Israel. David was on the run, if you please. We remember that the thing that Absalom stated that first allowed him to escape from David was, I must go and honor a vow that I made. In recognition of how important that was, David allowed him to go. However, Absalom was a treacherous man. He had no intent to go and keep a vow. He'd never even made such a one as far as the text indicates. And yet, when he left, it was his desire to chase David even further. 
Thus Absalom treated the vow very lightly. It seemed to mean nothing to him. And that treachery that is seen in his life, of course, would ultimately lead to his own death. Not many chapters later. Having said all that, might we give some thought to a particular vow? We've learned how significant and how important the vows were in the Old Testament and some of what was involved in them. But let's look more carefully at one of the vows, the Nazarite vow. As we do that, first of all, we'll need to ascertain what was this vow and then look at some of what was involved in it. The Nazarite vow is something that we find described in rather great detail in Numbers chapter 6. And so it is to that chapter I would invite your attention. Brother Harold read for us from chapter 6 of Numbers verses 2 through 6 some of the opening descriptions of the Nazarite vial. But we might notice that the continuing description will go all the way through verse 21. And in fact, as you look at that, I have chosen to summarize some of it in the following way. Some of this is what Harold read just a moment ago. But we might first of all notice that this Nazarite vow was usually for a particular interval of time. And Josephus and others inform us that usually it was in intervals that were evenly divisible by 30. For instance, 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. And so for you and me, it seemed to be nicely in intervals of a month. One might take a Nazarite vow for one month or two months or maybe three months. However, there are some exceptions to that because there are some who were Nazarites for life. That is to say, their parents took for them a Nazarite vow before the child was ever born. And thus, that person, that child, was a Nazarite and that adult as well for the entirety of that person's life. There are three such individuals listed in the Word of God. As you can see in Judges 13.5, the first one is Samson. We might remember that an angel appeared to Samson's parents, particularly his mother. And on that occasion, it was that angel who declared that this child that would be born to her would in fact be a Nazarite for life. We well remember that, of course, Samson had some very interesting characteristics, not the least of which was his bodily physical strength. But might we not forget, he was in fact a Nazarite for life. Following him, we notice in 1 Samuel 1 verses 9 and following, Samuel was a Nazarite for life. We will remember that Hannah, his mother, in fact, she was barren at the time, but she prayed earnestly and fervently to God that she might be granted a son. And upon, of course, the answer to that prayer, she had made the promise he would be given unto the service of the Lord. And the Scripture indicates that he too was a Nazarite for life. The third one is found in John the Baptist. In Luke 1.15 as well as Matthew 11.18, we encounter passages that strongly indicate that he too was also a Nazarite for life. So, whereas there were some that were Nazarites for particular intervals, there were others that were lifelong Nazarites. But in addition to that, we notice that the basic thrust of the Nazarite vow was such that it involved and entailed holiness and separation from anything that would defile. And that alone is a significant statement about what this Nazarite vow involved. 
when we say that it involved holiness, a higher degree, if you please, as well as separation from what defiles, the immediate question is, well, what were some of those things from which they had to separate and some of those things which, of course, they were not allowed to participate in? I've listed a few of them. You'll notice in verses 2, 3, and 4 of Numbers chapter 6, specifically, the fruit of the grape was, in fact, expressly forbidden. Let's note again the way in which the language presents that idea. He shall separate himself from wine and strong drink, and shall drink no vinegar of wine or vinegar of strong drink. Neither shall he drink any liquor of grapes, nor eat moist grapes or dried. In other words, even raisins were not allowed. They were unable to not only drink what one could even consider intoxicating beverage, he couldn't drink grape juice. This person was not allowed to even eat grapes or even raisins. They had to separate completely from all the matters related to the fruit of the vine. But what's more, we notice the list continues. Verse number 4. All the days of his separation shall he eat nothing that is made of the vine tree, from the kernels even to the husk. So that which in fact was a product of the vine tree, whether it be involved in its kernels, whether it be involved in the husks thereof also, that was not allowed. For these that would be Nazarites. Verse number 5 continues, all the days of the vow of his separation, there shall no razor come upon his head. He was not allowed to cut his hair. There are other passages a bit later that seem to indicate that, for the men at least, also included the beard. In which case, one could not cut the hair, nor could one trim or shave the beard. We can well tell that the notion then of the Nazarite included some matters again that may seem unusual to us. It may seem no matter at all to have a haircut or to trim one's beard appropriately, but for the Nazarite, that was not allowed. It was expressly forbidden. Furthermore, you'll notice even that isn't all. In verse 6, "...all the days that he separateth himself, unto the Lord he shall come at no dead body." One might immediately, though, raise the issue, suppose my mother or my father were to pass away. May he assist in the burial? May he assist in properly adorning the, the corpse? Verse 7 says, He shall not make himself unclean for his father or for his mother, for his brother or for his sister, when they die because the consecration of his God is upon his head. Again, in this long ancient day, long before there were funeral homes and long before there were those as undertakers who would take care of that for you, duties like taking care of the corpse were left to the family. But we notice a Nazarite was not even allowed to assist in the burial by touching that body of his mother, his father, his brother, his sister. We are beginning to appreciate it, does seem, doesn't it? How stringent how important and how significant this Nazarite vow must have been in the eyes of God for Him to command it in this way. As you give some thought to that which is stated, those who thus took upon themselves this Nazarite vow were highly regarded in Lamentations 4-7 as those who were exceedingly pure, some of the purest in all of Israel. 
we're beginning to no doubt see why. One, in his awareness of what God demanded. If he or she took upon himself this, he must have strongly loved the Lord, wanted to in fact cleanse himself from anything that would defile, and thus in that separation would strive to live a remarkably holy and austere life before the God of heaven. You'll notice furthermore, it does though this idea of the Nazarite lead us to one of the darkest days in the Minor Prophets. In Amos 2.12, we read on this occasion in the verses that preceded how special again the Nazarites were. But this, of course, is an insult to Israel in the sense that there were those in Israel who gave the Nazarites that fruit of the vine that they were not allowed to drink. Can you imagine God's people should have appreciated the Nazarites and the holiness to which they strove to live and the character that described their life. And yet, there were some in Israel who disregarded the Nazarites so, who in fact treated them so lightly that they would purposely try to give them fruit of the vine to drink. No wonder in the book of Amos, God described how that this was a people who called good evil and evil good. This was a people who he said, judgment ought to run down his waters, but yet you have no longer understood the character of the holiness which I demanded, and you have not lived in accordance thereto. It's sad that the Nazarites ought to have been the examples of purity, ought to have been the noble ones to whom all others should have looked as an example of holy living. And yet the Nazarites were the ones they looked down on, so they purposely tried to get them to break their Nazarite vow. Tragic, isn't it? And yet, in light of all of that, what might you and I say as Numbers chapter 6 rolls onward? Beginning at verse 13, we learn that there were many things that God declared that must have been done in order to draw the vow to a close. Perhaps we can summarize a few of them. If one were to have taken a protracted Nazarite vow, then after that period of 30 days or whatever extent of time it was... They had to go to the priest, take a particular set of offerings, offer them rightly, and only then could they cut their hair. But that hair that was cut was to be burned in the fire, and as such, only then was the conclusion or fulfillment to the vow declared. Interesting, isn't it? The significance, the rather great importance attached to it. Perhaps in light of all those statements, might we ask, what might be some principles or lessons in this Nazarite vow that might be meaningful or useful to you and to me? Although many specifics might be stated, here are some. Might we in fact notice the first one? It has to do with the character of this Nazarite vow as being voluntary. We learned earlier that God didn't require or force the Nazarite vow on anyone. It was left to that individual to choose that that would be the direction he or she would take in that course of his or her life for that period of time. God didn't force it upon them. As you and I reflect upon Christianity today, isn't it the same? God does not force anybody to become a Christian. He implores, He invites, He encourages he, in fact, has given His Son as the means by which it can occur, but He doesn't force Christianity upon anybody. He leaves that for you and for me to decide. Notice just a few of these passages that highlight that idea. 
we can see its principle embedded in the words of Joshua in Joshua 24, 15. Wasn't it Joshua who said, If it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. And then as the verse closes, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But wasn't our master ever so mighty as he sent forth those apostles with words like this? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Jesus didn't say you make them become disciples. He didn't say you force them under the water in baptism. He didn't say you in fact coerce them in any way. The invitation door is open, isn't it? And he said, you invite, you teach, you evangelize, you preach the word. It's their position, however, to respond in loving faith. It is still true, isn't it, that you and I cannot make anybody become a Christian. We might force someone under the water, but that wouldn't even be a baptism. For a baptism has to follow belief, and it has to follow repentance, and it has to follow confession. And if it doesn't follow those things, its prerequisites haven't been met. The voluntary character of the gospel is still a beautiful thing to behold, isn't it? Throughout the ages, there have been religious movements that have attempted to operate on the basis of forcefulness. And you and I are aware of one of them that has proceeded like a blaze around the world since the 7th century. It's the Muslim religion. At its outset, they operated by coercion by absolute military force. We notice in some ways they still attempt to do that. But Christ's religion does not operate that way. How many times in the Old Testament was it prophesied that it would be a religion of peaceful character? They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Isaiah 2 verses 3 and 4. Micah 4 verses 2 and 3. That is just one instance that highlights us to the pages of the New Testament in which we see that voluntary character highlighted in 2 Corinthians 10 verses 2 through 4 where there even Paul stated that it's our desire to bring every thought into captivity for our weapons are not carnal. You and I don't make people Christians by using a sword or a bomb or a tank. We do it by proclaiming the powerful Word of God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Notice even Paul said to those that believe, they have to respond. We pray that they will. We trust that they will. We hope that they will. But at the final basic matter, it's left as a voluntary issue. Just as surely as the Nazarite valve was based on that voluntary character, Notice the second lesson with me, if you would. Once the person took that vow, for that period of time it involved a high degree of dedication to the cause of God, abstaining from these things that other people in Israel were partaking of, abstaining from these matters that perhaps separated them in many ways from others about them. It perhaps would have been easy to appreciate after a while, well, that person's hair is long. That person is refusing to even help in the burial of his own family members. And that Nazarite vow would have required their continued loyalty to that vow that they had made. 
One of the things found also in Numbers chapter 6 raises the issue, what if a person accidentally defiled or broke that Nazarite vial? Suppose, for example, that one were in a position and someone died next to you. You hadn't made any plans to be there, but they passed away right next to you. You as a Nazarite, did God excuse it? Did He overlook it? Did He in fact allow you to proceed with the vow as if nothing had happened? The answer is no. All the days that would have occurred prior to that in the vow, God says they don't count anymore. That vow has now been violated. You had to start all over. Doesn't that help us see then that what God considered relative to the issues relating to the vow were exceedingly strict and stringent and God intended that vow to be kept in the way that the person in fact had vowed it. Look at the matter of this dedication. Doesn't it highlight what God expects of us? When you and I have obeyed the gospel, becoming a Christian, taking upon ourselves the name of the Son of God... God expects us, too, to be dedicated to His cause. Half-hearted service is not service at all. In Romans 12, beginning in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God." Isn't it remarkable still, the demand placed upon us as Christians based on that text? I beseech you as the, by the mercies of God to present your body a living sacrifice. Always, frequently, in that matter of service, and don't be conformed to what goes on about us. Just like the difference the Nazarite was to those about him, so too you and I will be peculiar in regard to those about us. That peculiarity affirmed in Titus 2.14, in which we're told we are a people of God's own possession, a peculiar people unto the good works of the Savior. That peculiarity perhaps is also highlighted in the totality or entirety of that devotion that God expects of us. We noted it at one point in the lesson this morning, but isn't it true still in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. The entirety of that person also noticed in Matthew 19, verses 16 and following. We might remember how that the Lord to a rich young ruler stated it like this. This person had seemingly an eagerness come to Jesus and said, Good Master, what, what good thing must I do that I may inherit eternal life? Jesus first began by defining what good is. And then He reminded him of the commandments that he was to keep. That person quickly affirmed he'd kept all those commandments, but Jesus said, One more thing you lack. One more thing. Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor and come follow me. Jesus, you see, by being able to read the person's heart and mind, knew one more thing stood between him and God. Luke reminds us he did go away sorrowfully because he had many riches. Nothing can be allowed to stand in between us and God. Just like in the Nazarite case, nothing could be allowed to stand between them and God. It might be noted the wholeness of that takes us to a third lesson. 
the separation from defilements. We did notice earlier that there were many things that they were not allowed to intake. Any fruit of the grape. They were allowed nothing that related to any fruit of that particular husk or kernel or vine. But might we give some thought to the issue of that in regard to us? Does God also require that you and I separate from that which defiles? Does He require that you and I strive to live separate and apart from that which defiles? In Matthew chapter 15, we learn that a number of things are there described. And in fact, of Jesus, it was specifically asked, What is it that defiles a man? There were some that thought because they hadn't washed their hands. They had eaten with unwashing hands that that defiled them. Jesus said, let me tell you. It's not that which enters in that defiles, but that which comes out of his heart. And he proceeded to list murders, adulteries, fornications, various kinds of speech and other things. That which proceeds out of the heart is that which defiles. And hence, we learn from what the Savior declared there that you and I must also strive to ever keep that heart in check the mind, because out of it will flow our language, out of it will flow our thoughts, of course, and also out of that will flow the places we frequent. And we must thus strive in that passage as well as these to appreciate the separation that God does expect of us. In the sixth chapter of Second Corinthians, beginning in verse 14 and continuing through the end of that chapter, we remember that we are told, Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. That is a rather remarkable passage, isn't it? Come out from what? That which defiles, that which in fact is one that tarnishes and mars in the sight of God. Some have wondered the degree to which that application occurs. Paul doesn't easily limit it. It's very broad in its application. And did he not say in verses 16 and 17 in particular, that as Christians we are not thus to be the followers of Belial, the followers of unrighteousness, the followers of ungodliness, but rather just as the Nazarites were called to be separate and to not enter into that which defiled, we as Christians are called to do the same. To live that life that's regarded as one of holiness. And aren't we reminded in Hebrews twelve fourteen that without holiness no man shall see the Lord. We must thus live that life that's regarded and recognized as a life indeed of godly living. Wholesomeness, soundness in speech, in thought, in word, in language. It is true then, isn't it, that the principle of the Nazarite vow seems to have a remarkable bearing upon the demands that God requests and places upon us as it relates to Christianity. In 1 Peter 1.16, we in fact read that passage that challenges each of us still, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Because we serve a holy God and we are His disciples, His followers, we thus must live holily. And these three lessons have perhaps prompted us to a fourth one. In addition to noting the voluntary character, and in addition to appreciating the separation from defilement that we've seen, and the character of the dedication involved. Notice with me this fourth one at the top. Perhaps the nature of unappreciation. We noted earlier from Amos 2.12 that amazingly there were those in Israel who made light of the Nazarites. 
They didn't appreciate them. They didn't see in them the striving of a person to live more holily and righteously before God. They, it seems, not only insulted them, but purposely tried to help them break their vow. We might suggest from that that there are lessons for Christianity. You and I will encounter those who do not particularly care for the kind of life we choose to live. There will be those who particularly perhaps will purposefully insult, belittle, perhaps even try to get us to stumble and fall as Christians. They will in fact have little interest in living for Christ. They do not see it as significant. They do not see it as important. They do not feel the impressiveness of it. Many could be listed as examples who choose to so live, but they often can strive purposefully to cause stumbling blocks to be put in the way of those who strive to live for Christ. We shouldn't be shocked that there shall be those like that. Jesus said there would be. We read that, of course, in John 15, 19. We, in addition, encountered in 1 John 3, 13, where even there the apostle of love said, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We also can appreciate that powerful promise of 2 Timothy 3.12 where even Paul affirmed, Yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We thus learn there will be those who do not particularly find it interesting to live like a Christian. You mean you don't dance? You don't gamble? You don't drink? Well, what do you do on Saturday night? I watch TV with my family or we read the Bible or we go to bed early. They think we're crazy. They have no interest in that kind of life. They will suddenly find an interest in it in the day of judgment, but it should be too late if they haven't repented and made themselves right. But the point is, just like the Nazarites were insulted, we should expect we may be too. And sometimes it can be hurtful. And sometimes it can, in fact, cause one to be a bit on the depressed side when the world seems so uninterested in what God has to offer. But may we, like the Nazarite, cling to our vow we've made to God. At the time, right before our baptism, we said, I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. May we never forget that, but live always based on that truth. Because that truth emanating in the faith of our life will cause us to redound to obedience and that we indeed will be found faithful unto the great God of heaven. Unappreciation, it can happen. You'll notice though that there's one final lesson that we might understand tonight. And we've just hinted at it already, but let's expound a bit further upon it. We did notice earlier that it was possible to take a Nazarite vow for a specified interval of time, maybe a month, perhaps two. There were, though, three that were Nazarites for life. We listed them as Samson, John the Baptist, and Samuel. Might we notice that in order for salvation, we must be Christian until the time of death. We can't just be a Christian for a month or two, or even a year or two, and think that that's enough. Because we're reminded in the Word of God that it is for life. Look at just a few of these passages, if you will. In 2 Peter 2, verses 18 to 22, we are told of the dire circumstances of those who have become Christians and have been saved from sin, and yet they choose to turn from that holy commandment delivered to them. 
the statement of Peter is the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. It is, according to those proverbs, the dog turning again to its own vomit or the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. You see, a protracted period of time wasn't enough then to guarantee heaven. One has to live faithfully until death, Revelation 2, verse 10. One has to, in fact, have the embodiment of all that we find in the life of Paul once he became a Christian there in the city of Damascus in Acts chapter 9. The thought then about just a Christian for a little while, that won't suffice. We must, like the Nazarite, specifically in the lives of those three, be committed to the Lord throughout the days of our life. And then we too shall appreciate the blessing of all eternity in that regard. You'll notice near the bottom of that slide, the thought of Revelation 3 verses 1 through 5, in which we are given a rather stern warning. It happened to be in the presence of that church at Sardis, but it was one of the seven churches of Asia. And to them in particular, it was told that their name would be blotted out of the book of life unless they remained faithful. You'll notice that their names had been placed in that book, but that it was going to be erased if they did not in fact live in faithfulness. Tonight, as you give thought to your life, and as I do the same for mine, what should we say about the Nazarite vow? In brevity, we've learned some of these things. The vow itself was an important matter in the Bible. This particular Nazarite vow, however, required a number of very specific regulations. In particular, we noticed that it was a voluntary thing. It wasn't forced upon anyone. And tonight, you aren't forced to obey the gospel. But if you need to, the Lord does invite you. We noticed furthermore the degree of dedication and separation that was required. God will demand that you and I be separated to His cause from the defilements of the world. Fourthly, we noted that though some may be unappreciative, we must be dedicated to God for life. If tonight you are not a Christian, if you're not a faithful Christian, that could be remedied in just a few moments this evening. If you've never rendered initial obedience to the cause of Christ, you've never had your sins washed away in baptism, why not let tonight be that night? Believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. If in that regard, we could be of assistance. We'd be delighted to do so. If you have become a Christian, but perhaps you, unlike these lifelong Nazarites, you are a faithful Christian for a while, maybe a few years, but you no longer are. Come back to that first love, for that's what the Lord demands. If tonight we could be of assistance to pray on your behalf, why not let that be known as well? If any of these things are the need of your life this evening, why not let it be known, if you would, while together we stand and while we sing.